and I'll read uh, the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2. A beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Uh, give your full attention to it. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will, who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's turn now to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge or, or king of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so, believe it or not, Christmas is around the corner. Um, so I thought I'd preach on Micah chapter 5. It's a passage that's very familiar to many of us. Uh, but let me open by telling you a little bit about the book of Micah, uh, just in case you haven't read it in a little while, or maybe you haven't read it before, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Micah is a prophet, and you know what's up with prophets, right? Uh, they don't sugarcoat things, they tell it how it is. Uh, they warn often with biting and harsh words of our sins, and, and Micah is no exception. Uh, he actually tells us what his mission is in chapter 3, uh, where he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel 
his sin. Uh, and, and just like the other prophets, Micah also gives Israel and, and us comforting hope in the midst of judgment. And that's really what we have in our passage this morning. Uh, it's probably one of the most, if not the most, memorable sections of the book. Uh, maybe because of how much hope it gives us during this time of the year. Uh, as we consider, again, the significance of Jesus' incarnation. And so it's a familiar text, no doubt. Uh, but in it, God promises to give us a ruler in whom we can put our trust in. And so here, here's what I want us to, to kind of take in this morning. And here's our big idea. And it's simply this. Uh, God loves to give us hope in places that seem insignificant and small. God loves to give us hope in places that seem insignificant and small. Uh, and, and here's our, our game plan for the sermon. Uh, one, we're going to look at the place of hope. And two, the king of hope. The place of hope and the king of hope. So before Micah can tell us about hope, uh, he first uh, paints a super gloom picture for us. Uh, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Uh, o daughter of troops uh, is a strange phrase, but uh, it's a reference to Jerusalem here. It, it's, it's the people who are about to be thrown into exile. They're about to be taken away by that great, um, great power, Babylon. Uh, life as they know it is never going to be the same. Israel is going back to a life of slavery and hardship, a life they once knew, a, a kind of life they once lived, if you remember, back in Egypt. They're going back. Uh, so Micah is basically telling them to prepare the enemies are coming. They're going to surround the city. They're going to take us all away. What a scary moment that is, right? And you know the situation is bad when your, your ruler or your king is, is being humiliated. And so the Babylonians have struck uh, the king on the cheek with the rod. No, this is a symbol symbolic act of their power over Israel, right? Uh, there's actually a play on words here in the Hebrew uh, where the word for ruler sounds like the word for rod. Uh, Israel's ruler uh, is, to put, is about to be put to shame by the rod of Babylon. And at this point of Israel's history, this ruler would have been the, the king Jehoiachin. Uh, he was the king of Judah at this, at this time. Uh, it was then that Jehoiachin was forced uh, to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. He was sent to exile. Uh, and, and Jeremiah actually uh, prophesies this very thing. And, and Micah is saying it's, it's about to come true. Uh, but as powerful as Babylon was, uh, they might have captured Israel and their king. But this isn't really about them. This captivity isn't really about them. It's really about God. Uh, that is, God's doing on His people or to His people. God is judging them. Because if you read the rest of the book of Micah, what is Israel like 
Well, Israel has been unjust. Their king and leaders have been corrupt. And rich people have oppressed the poor. And so as judgment, God is sending them where they don't want to go. He's uh, he's going to discipline them in Babylon. Uh, I mean, also think about what's under threat here, right? The throne. Will there be a king on David's throne? Has God broken his promise to his people? Because he's sending them away along with their king. I mean, what's God's promise? God has promised to always have a king on the throne of David. And but now he's, he's sending uh, him away into captivity. And so, so here's the thing. Judgment doesn't always mean that God has broken his promise. God keeps faith even when he judges us. That, that is an incredibly difficult truth for us to swallow, isn't it? When we are going through difficulty... We think God is far away from us. But you know what? God God is the promise-keeping God even when we feel defeated, even when we feel like we are being sent into exile. I want you to think about what it would be like to be under siege, what it would be like to be surrounded by a violent people, a a people ready to, to enslave you. What would that be like? You know, kind of like the Lord of the Rings, you're, you're in, in, in the castle and, and all these orcs are, are surrounding you. They're ready to take you. I don't know about you, but I would be in despair, right? I would feel utterly helpless and defeated. I would feel anxious and troubled. I would feel weak and small. That's how Israel is feeling at this moment. Because the whole thing seems like darkness. But not everything is what it seems. Because with God, there's always hope. There's always hope. Even in, even in a place like exile. Actually, exile is the perfect place to find hope, according to the Bible. Why? Why? Because, because exile strips us of ourselves. And you know what? God has to bring us to the end of ourselves if he's going to give us lasting hope. Hope must come entirely outside of us if it's going to be real hope. We must find it completely in God and none of it in ourselves. Because when does God give us hope? It's not when we feel self-sufficient. It's not when we think we have it all together. He gives us hope when we're weak, when we feel small and insignificant. Uh, And so in this light, um, Micah can give us a big but. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, but you who are too small, God says, I'm going to, to do something big in you. I'll bring big hope in a small place. Out of your defeat, I will sound a trumpet of victory. Because one day, a great king will come from you. I think we all know this, um, but Bethlehem is such a significant place in the Bible, right? We know this this time of the year. Uh, Bethlehem is where Jesse was born. 
Bethlehem was where David was born. It's where Obed was born. You remember Obed? Right? In the book of Ruth. Without Obed, the kingly line would disappear. But Obed was born in Bethlehem. And most of all, who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So without Bethlehem, there would be no incarnation. And without incarnation, we would have no hope. And so Bethlehem is, is significant to us. But you know, as significant as Bethlehem is, it's also really insignificant, isn't it? Because think about the physical place of Bethlehem. It was small, in the words of my son, tiny. Micah says, it's too little to even be among the clans of Judah. You know, Bethlehem was the runt of the litter. No one took notice of her. She might have as well been invisible. In fact, she was treated as such. But if you know anything about God, this is the kind of place that is fertile soil, right? For God, it's the kind of place where hope can grow. And so here's what I want us to see. Bethlehem is more than a geographical location. Because Bethlehem reflects the kinds of people that God chooses, right? So take David, for instance. David was from Bethlehem. What kind of person was he? Do you remember how David was chosen to be the king of Israel? Yeah? After Saul, you know, Saul, this, this really tall guy, he looks the part. This, this had to be the king, right? After that dude messed up, God rejects him to be the king and, and, and tells the prophet Samuel to go and anoint the next king. What does he say? Go to Bethlehem, appoint, uh, anoint and appoint one of Jesse's son. He'll be the next king in line. And so Samuel, like a good prophet, he goes to Bethlehem to Jesse's house. And he tells Jesse, you know, I'm going to anoint one of your sons. Go get them. And so what does Samuel see? He sees Jesse's first son, Eliab. And, and Samuel basically says, man, this got to be the dude, right? Eliab is tall. He's handsome. He looks the part. He looks like the king. How can this dude not be it? But God says, you know, that's not it. He's very impressive. He's tall and good looking, but that's not him. That's not my king. God tells Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. So it wasn't Eliab. In fact, it wasn't the next six sons that passed through. The next king would be Jesse's youngest son, David. Except David wasn't invited to the party, right? He was out back. He was out back trying to fight off bears and animals and protect his sheep. By the way, David is a shepherd. And we're going to see in our passage what kind of ruler this eternal king is going to be. 
a shepherd, right? But David's own dad, right? David's own dad didn't think in a million years that he would be the next king. So he doesn't even invite him. Why? Because, because David is too small. He's, he's the runt of the litter. But God chose David in all of his weakness and insignificance. See, it's not an accident that God would choose Bethlehem. Just like he chose David. He would choose a, a very small and insignificant place. It's not an afterthought to, to God, because God always chooses the small and the lowly. This is, this is one of the big themes in all of the Bible. If you learn to look for it, you'll see it everywhere. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Look for it. Next time you're reading your Bible, why do, what, who does God choose? He doesn't choose the Goliaths. He chooses the Davids. Uh, this is hanging up in our, let's see, we've been moving around a lot, in, in our dining room right now. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so Micah says, one, out of this small town, this small town of Bethlehem, will come a ruler. He will bring Israel out of exile. He will deliver them from their captivity. But it's important to know this. Uh, this isn't just any other ruler, right? He's from old. He's from ancient of days, Micah says. What in the world does that mean? So this king's origin is from old. Uh, but he'll one day be born to rule Israel. Kind of weird, right? Uh, really, the best explanation for this is simple. Micah is talking about an eternal king who will come in the flesh, right? Like, doesn't that sound like somebody? And even more, this eternal king will be God himself. Uh, think of Jesus saying to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Micah wants Israel to set their hope in the coming of their king. That he himself will rule over them. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Jehoiachin, nor any other king, but God himself. That is Israel's hope. Uh, but I want you to notice what happens before this king is born. Uh, Micah says this in, in, in verse 3. He says, this king shall give them up. He shall, he shall surrender his people to captivity, uh, where they will have to wait, you know, in captivity. They're going to have to wait as aliens and outcasts in a foreign land. I mean, this is us. This is us. We are the aliens and outcasts in a foreign land. If you feel at home in this world, your hope is in this world and not in the king. 
But this is us, right? Peter, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in this world. And so what does it feel like to wait as exiles? I love Micah's picture here. Uh, he says it's like, it, it's like a woman in, in labor about to give birth to the future ruler or king. Mothers, you know what this is like. Uh, let me just say, I'll, I'll never know what this is like. And so, I, mothers, you are powerful beyond belief. I am weak. When I get a cold, the world seems over to me, you know? But you moms have this experience that I don't have. This is why we need to read the Bible together. You know... The waiting is hard and painful. And the rest of us guys and, and, and you know, other people who don't have this, this experience, all, the rest of us can only imagine the anguish of waiting. But, but the waiting won't be in vain. Uh, because when the labor is done, then God will come and redeem Israel from exile. Uh, Micah actually made this very point in chapter 4. He said, Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. See, same, same picture. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. This is the very place this hard, hard life that we are encountering, this is the very place that God wants to rescue us. That's good news. God doesn't promise that we won't go through hardship and pain, that we won't experience suffering and judgment. You know, we're, we're even destined to die. That's life in exile. But, but here's the point I want to make. Those difficult and painful places in our lives are precisely the places where God loves to give us hope. Those are the places that God meets us with His grace. Uh, when Israel's hope becomes a reality, Micah says their king will stand and shepherd them. Uh, standing here is a posture. It's a posture of endurance and perseverance. It means his rule will continue with power and longevity. It will rule, he will rule forever. It makes sense, right? He's from the ancient of days. His rule will be forever. It will never fail. This king, he will never fade like every other kings in this world. You know, they rise up to power, but then they die. But this king is eternal. He will never die. So his reign is permanent. He will stand forever. By the way, uh, do you know what else stands forever in the Bible? What else stands forever in the Bible? Well, the Bible, right? God's word. 
Remember, remember how I ended uh, our scripture reading earlier? Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands or endures forever. So God's word stands forever. And this promised king's rule will stand forever. I mean, who else could this be? But the Lord Jesus, this is the enduring word of God. Which means he's also this enduring king that Israel is waiting for. But here's the question. But just exactly what kind of king is he? He's not oppressive or domineering. No, he's gentle and patient because he has a pastoral heart. Micah tells us that he's like, he's like a shepherd. He's, he's a shepherd like, like David. He will care for us as a sheep so that we might live in safety. I love how Micah describes it. And they shall dwell secure. They are secure because this king will defend them with his life. He will fight for them in the Lord's strength, in the name of the Lord his God. Or as Jesus puts it in John's gospel, he will be their good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. And when this shepherd comes, the shepherd will be of renown. His greatness will be made known, right? It's, it's not only Israel who will know him, but the whole world will know him. This king's greatness and rule will extend to us, even to us who were once far off. Uh, because it turns out he's not just some local ruler or local king. He won't just rule a small piece of land in the Middle East This ruler, this king, will be a cosmic king. His rule will be universal. All the nations will be included in his rule. I mean, isn't that good news? Because it means that we have a place in all of this. The hope that Israel has is the same hope that we have. We can read our Old Testament and find hope in it. That's good news, that this king will come and be our shepherd too. And so Micah wraps it all up in one sentence. Uh, He says in verse 5, And he, uh, this king, he shall be their peace. I don't know if there's anything more comforting than that. That God has a deep desire for our wholeness, that when he comes, he will drive away all of our fears and give peace to our hearts. That's what Jesus' advent is all about. He comes to give us peace. And so you can't read Micah 5 and not see Jesus. Uh, Jesus is God's promised king uh, who came to rule in the strength of his Lord And he himself has become our peace. Uh, But as Micah prophesied, he had to be born in Bethlehem, a place of weakness and insignificance. Uh, But isn't Bethlehem such a fitting place for Jesus to be born then? 
Jesus wasn't born in a big place like Babylon or, or, or even Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. And the very place he was born tells us what kind of king Jesus is. Uh, because if you think about it, Jesus embodied his birthplace his entire life. Like Bethlehem, uh, Jesus on the surface was unimpressive, right? I mean, what's so impressive about a small crying infant? Yet Jesus was the ancient of days. I mean, what's so impressive about a weak and lowly homeless man? Yet he is the eternal king. What's so impressive about a man hanging naked on a cross? Yet he is the eternal God. You see, Jesus became a living Bethlehem. And in doing so, he disarmed the powerful. He became an enemy of both the religious leaders and the state. Uh, we, we saw this in our New Testament reading from Matthew 2 earlier. What did Matthew keep ca calling Herod? A king. Herod the king. Yet, yet he, Herod, and all of Jerusalem with him was powerless over the infant king in swaddling clothes. Advent teaches us that hope comes from small places. Uh, Jesus disarmed the power of darkness by becoming weak. Uh, the prophet Isaiah wrote this long time ago. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull, at, pull out the beard. I hid, my, uh, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Uh, that's the gospel I proclaim to you this morning. The eternal king was struck down that we might have hope. Uh, let me close our time in God's word with a few reflections this morning. Uh, and so, where is your hope found in the midst of all the chaos going on around us in this world? In the midst of global pandemic, where is your hope? In the midst of political divisions, uh, racial tensions, where is your hope? in the midst of your anxieties and depression, in the midst of your personal struggle with sin, where is your hope? Uh, many of us are looking for hope in all the wrong places. We look for hope in what seems big, in what seems successful. We put our hope in, in powerful people, in the money that we have, in the freedom that we enjoy in where our education can take us. Uh, but you know what? Those aren't the places where we find hope. God gives us hope in the Bethlehems of our lives. He wants to give us hope in what seems small and insignificant. He wants to give us hope in the places of pain and suffering. Because if the coming of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that God meets us in unexpected places. He gives us hope in the darkness, and hope changes us. Hope allows us to wait for light while we sit in darkness. Because we know that when it seems like we're in complete darkness, God is on the way. He's on the way to bring us light. And when we live with, a, with that kind of hope, we embody Bethlehem. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, uh, we thank you for your enduring and eternal word.
We ask uh, that you would cultivate in our hearts uh, that word that we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Give us lasting hope in the Prince of Peace that nothing can take away, not even exile. Teach us to wait for light in the darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.